Fired Up show starts right now. And welcome, everybody. Welcome back to the Fired Up podcast right here on WJMS Media. We're glad to have you with us this week. As always, uh, we've got a jam-packed show to bring to you this week. So let's get right into it, okay? Just like we do every week. We start off with our COVID recap. Uh, we are currently sitting at 96.9 million uh, COVID cases. 1,065,000 people have uh, died from the disease. And 624 million people have been vaccinated against the disease. And that's at least one dose or fully vaccinated. When it comes to the uh, monkeypox tracking that we do, we're currently sitting at 26,049 cases of monkeypox reported here in the United States. So we continue to see uh, on the COVID front uh, a slowing in the rate of infection, the rate of hospitalizations and deaths, and a uh, slight increase uh, in the number of people vaccinated. So let's continue that good trend. Let's continue to stay safe and practice our, our good health practices out there. All right. We uh, had a very interesting week this past week in the political spectrum. Uh, we're going to talk about a few uh, cases and some interesting things that occurred this week. And uh, we'll start it off with an update of a story that we've been following uh, for many weeks now. You may recall that Florida Governor DeSantis uh, sent uh, airplanes over to Texas and picked up, uh, I believe it was 43 uh, immigrants uh, to this country who were here uh, seeking asylum or seeking refugee status. Uh, he gathered those people, uh, flew them from Texas uh, to Martha's Vineyard uh, off the coast of Massachusetts, and uh, that created an, an absolute storm of controversy. Well, uh, of late, it appears that his plan to embarrass the Democrats by sending these group of people who were here legally seeking asylum in this country. Uh, remember, these were not illegal uh, immigrants who crossed the border illegally. These were people who had gone through the process of applying for asylum here in the United States. Well, uh, apparently, uh, that plan to create an embarrassing situation, sending these immigrants to Massachusetts, uh, is backfiring uh, even further on Florida Governor DeSantis. Uh, it seems that uh, under the circumstances by which these people were transported, that uh, they actually committed a crime uh, by sending them you know, on this cross-country journey. It's an article from the Daily Beast uh, that came out on the 14th, and it uh, states, DeSantis stunt backfires Martha's Vineyard migrants to get victims of crime visas uh, from the United States. So the article cites that uh, the group of Venezuelan nationals, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, paid to have flown from Texas to Martha's Vineyard in September, are officially victims of crime, qualifying them for a uh, Type U visa, which gives them non-immigrant status 
so that they can remain in the country to provide evidence uh, or testify in any related criminal proceedings. A Texas sheriff said Thursday, Bexar County Sheriff Javier Salazar, who opened an investigation into the stunt almost immediately, has submitted certification documents to allow the 48 uh, people to apply for a visa. He said he is investigating the case as unlawful restraint, quote, based on the claims of migrants being transported from Bexar County in Texas under false pretenses, close quote. In a separate lawsuit filed by the migrants, they allege that they were lured into the flight with false promises of cash and jobs. And if you've been following the story as we have, you know that uh, these individuals were promised uh, residences, clothing, food, hospitalization if needed, uh, and a job when they got to Massachusetts. But upon arriving in Martha's Vineyard, none of those things materialized. So it would appear that um, this action initiated by Florida Governor DeSantis uh, who thought that he could create a situation uh, embarrassing the uh, Democrats in the U.S. Uh, by sending these, these people to so-called sanctuary cities and territories, uh, actually uh, is going to or seems to be working in their favor as they seek to gain lawful residence here in the United States. We will keep following this story uh, wherever it leads, and we will keep you posted on any new details that come up. So uh, that is one of the events that occurred this week. In other news, the January 6th committee held its ninth and possibly final hearing on the uh, insurrection on the Capitol in Janu back in January 6th of last year, uh, and Basically, that meeting or that presentation uh, served as something of a recap of the events presented in kind of a summation format. Uh, in addition, it also brought forward some new uh, information and some new uh, video that showed what was transpiring with the uh, elected officials uh, during the insurrection during the time that the uh, people who broke into the Capitol were roaming the halls uh, provided an interesting uh, look into what the leaders of the House and Senate were doing uh, while they were uh, in effect hiding out from the insurrectionists who were seeking them to do them you know grievous bodily harm up to and including hanging the then sitting Vice President Mike Pence. In those video clips, you saw uh, leaders such as Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, uh, and others uh, not cowering in the room, but actually frantically making calls to various agencies and individuals, uh, including the governors of both Virginia and Maryland, uh, seeking to get uh, law enforcement assistance to come to the Capitol. Uh, to aid in uh, turning back the insurrectionists, as well as, uh, you know, speaking with various members to try and get them to convince uh, former President Trump uh, to take action to end the insurrection and, and get the people to go home. So 
you know, we saw that. And then at the end of the, the testimony given, the committee announced that they were going to subpoena the, for, the former president, Donald Trump, to appear before the committee and give testimony about his actions during the insurrection. So there was an article in uh, Business Insider that came out on the 14th uh, where Trump has issued something of a response to the subpoena, saying that uh, this article quotes, um, and it's written by Tom Porter, and it appeared, as I said, on the 14th, uh, Trump wants to testify to the January 6th committee, but only if they broadcast it live. And this is according to reports that were first presented by the New York Times and corroborated by other news sources. And it talks about where uh, the former president told aides he might comply with a subpoena to testify before the January 6th committee as long as he can do so live. And again, this comes from New York Times' Maggie Haberman, who is reporting. And according to Haberman, Trump, is, Trump has told aides he's not opposed to the idea of testifying before the committee as long as it's on his terms. You know, um... And, you know, he has been told by some of his aides that, and, and in fact, I think most of them told him that he should not testify uh, before the committee. Um, and, you know, we'll see how that plays out. But, you know, most of the witnesses who have testified in front of the committee uh, did so behind closed doors with the committee presenting video clips prepared in advance to play in the live hearings. And we've seen, you know, individuals like former Attorney General uh, Barr and, you know, other people's uh, presidential counsel, Cipollone, etc., who answered questions of the committee uh, in, in private session. With these answers were recorded and presented as part of the evidence that the committee brought forward uh, during the hearings that have uh, transpired over the weeks. In some cases, witnesses who testified uh, behind closed doors also came forward and testified live uh, after they had submitted their evidence in private. The article cites that if Trump testified, he would have to do so under oath, risking perjury charges uh, if he were to lie. So, you know, the, the idea is that, um, you know, if Trump wants to testify before the committee, uh, he will most likely have to do it under the, the terms of the subpoena. Uh, one thing to keep in mind is when you receive a subpoena, you don't necessarily get to dictate the terms on how you deliver your testimony. Uh, you are, are called and compelled to appear and to answer questions. Uh, one of the things that uh, Trump has responded to uh, over his social media platform. He described the committee as a giant, as quote, a giant scam presided over by a group of radical left losers and two failed Republicans, close quote. Uh, GOP leadership, it should be noted, turned down the opportunity to select members of the party to take part. And if you recall, uh, initially, the members that they had submitted to uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi 
were rejected by her because of their extremely partisan views on the January 6th uh, insurrection and her belief that that you know their participation would not serve to advance the interests of you know finding the truth and, and finding the facts but would rather turn into a political and partisan sideshow. Uh, the article continues, some analysts expect Trump to challenge the subpoena in courts, and this is a process that could take months. And the Trump campaign has already indicated or done things that uh, would lead one to believe that you know anything he can do to delay the process is a step that he is willing or wants to take. So we will, again, keep you posted and see whether or not the former president does in fact come forward and testify. Um, if he does, you know, we will definitely uh, tune in and watch the proceedings, as I'm sure a lot of Americans will. Uh, it, it, it is a, a historic uh, event, and you know, we will make sure that we keep you apprised of what happens. So, you know, it, it like I said, it has been an interesting week. Um, and one of the things, uh, in fact, both of these stories tie into uh, a, a, a premise that appears to be that Republicans uh, who flout their belief in law and order and you know, following the rule of law and how important the rule of law is seem to take every opportunity they can to bend or twist or break the the rules or the laws when it suits their favor you know as as i stay as i stated at the top florida governor DeSantis, republican uh you know broke possibly broke the law violated the rights of these lawfully uh uh asylum seeking migrants and transported them potentially against their will, or at least in a, a state of uninformed uh, understanding of what was going to happen uh, across state lines to Massachusetts. And now we have the case where uh, the former president, who has been subpoenaed to testify before the committee, uh, is attempting to change the the rules of how the subpoena process and response work uh, by you know adding that he will only testify perhaps if his testimony is allowed to be carried live which if you are you know a, a following you know the the actions of this former president uh, would probably turn this into a a uh, partisan rant with uh, potentially very few uh, truthful or factual answers given to the questions of the committee. Rather, uh, it, it is fairly obvious, again, if you followed uh, the former president and his comments on the proceedings, that he would spend his time you know, attacking the committee and attacking the individuals and doing many things except truthfully answering the questions that are posed to him. So, you know, we will see how this, again, transpires. Uh, my gut tells me that he, his request to have it done in a live fashion will be declined, in which case he will then, you know, look at 
actions to pursue in court, which will delay the the testimony that he does give if he gives it, uh, you know, out several months. So we will see what happens. Stay tuned. But again, as I was starting to say, uh, these two items, you know, in and of themselves are kind of indicative of the contempt or disregard that Republicans in general and, and, you know, MAGA Republicans in particular uh, seem to have a disdain for, you know, the rule of law or rules in general where they perceive that it does not fit their view of how things are supposed to work or how things are supposed to proceed. You know, they are, are very uh, eager to bend rules and ignore rules, uh, as we'll see in another story we're going to talk about later in this episode, um, to, to suit their needs when it suits their needs. And yet, when you know, looking at you know, other elements or whether, when looking at you know, if, if the Democrats have been perceived to, to bend or break uh, a rule or a law, which which they have. Let's be fair. Um, the Republicans are quick to stand up on their soapbox of law and order and you know righteous following of you know the the rule of law here in America. You know and you know again their actions don't line up with the rhetoric. You know for example the uh, Republicans and. Uh, again, in general, and the the MAGA wing of the Republican Party, uh, in particular, have been very vocal in their absolute support uh, for police officers. Yet the insurrectionists uh, killed one police officer, injured more than a hundred others, uh, and you know just generally showed a disregard for law enforcement that that, you know, belies their professed support for, you know, the brothers and sisters in blue. So, as I said, take a look at what happened. Uh, You can go to numerous uh, websites and see the the hearing in its entirety. Um, I recommend uh, that you check out C-SPAN. They will, they have covered it, you know, gavel to gavel, uh, with no interruptions for you know political views or or discussion among hosts, uh, it is probably the best way to see these kind of events in their entirety as they were uh, transpiring on the time they were given. So, you know, we will obviously stay on top of this. Uh, this is still a a story that's developing. Uh, we, as I said, expect that we have seen all of the hearings that we are going to see from the January 6th committee and will await uh, their report to be produced. Uh, early, early interviews and, and early statements from members of the committee state it will likely be uh, close to the end of this year or into early next year uh, before their report comes out. So, you know, we will have completed the uh, November midterms, uh, but it, it is clear that, you know, this report 
is going to play a role in the run-up to the 2024 uh, presidential election as it is going to most likely drive and shape the uh, political actions that are taking with regard to changes that might need to be made in our election process, uh, specifically and, and most specifically, uh, how the electoral vote is handled. And you know, just to kind of tie a bow around that, uh, we are already seeing that there's legislation being crafted and proposed that would change how the electoral process is handled at the federal level, uh, you know, specifically legislation that is uh, working its way through the House and through the Senate that would solidify the ceremonial role of the vice president in terms of certifying the electoral vote uh, and remove you know, ambiguities as to how much authority the vice president has uh, or doesn't have as you know president of the Senate uh, when it comes to certifying the vote and it will also most likely address what uh, will happen in the event that there is a question about the electors uh, I believe I, I covered this in uh, last week's podcast where they are looking at the fact that right now you only need uh, one senator and one House member to, uh, to disapprove of a slate of electors before it would uh, trigger uh, a, a halt to the proceedings, have the electoral results sent back to the states and you know, recomputed and then you know, brought back where they would take you know, a new vote on the electoral count. And something else to keep in mind, and I don't think I talked about this in the, in the previous podcast, unlike normal votes where the total number of representatives and total numbers of senates, senators for each state uh, are counted as individuals, in the electoral process, each state only gets one vote. So if the, the House is you know overwhelmingly republican then you know even if the outcome was decided in the favor of the democrats uh the republicans could uh change that just based on the fact that they each only have one vote uh to provide so we'll keep watch as always and bring you any updates or any new developments that happen with that so it brings the question, while we have you know, more than enough opinions on you know, both sides of the aisle as to what our elected officials think about the process and, and what needs to happen, uh, I'd like to hear from, from you, from the voters, from the listeners. Uh, you can send a response to the show at firedupradio at yahoo.com. And I, I guess my question is, Given all that we have seen uh, that has transpired in the last uh, two and a half years uh, that since the, the 20, since the run up to the 2020 election, since the election itself and you know, post election, um, do we need to make substantive changes to how we handle our election process in this country? 
uh, what do you think about proposed changes to the Electoral Count Act, which is the rule that governs how the uh, electors uh, sent up from the states are uh, addressed and handled, and what would you like to see changed? So send an answer uh, or you know any questions you have or comments to the show at firedupradio at yahoo.com. I'd love to get your comments. I enjoy uh, reading them. Uh, they, they do shape uh, information that I provide on this podcast because uh, I want to make sure that I'm responding to your concerns and your wishes as well. So, you know, let me know what you think. The email address again is firedupradio at yahoo.com. Please take a moment, send me your thoughts. I'd love to hear from each and every one of you. All right, we'll take our first break here. And when we come back on the other side, we've got some other uh, political machine news that we are going to talk about. You're listening to the Fired Up Podcast. This is Steve. We'll be right back after the break. This is Morgan Freeman. I know that many of you are wondering how soon you'll be able to hug your friends again or visit your parents and grandparents without fear. I know that many of you are angered by the ongoing racism in our nation and worried about having a job to repay your student loans and afford the basic needs of life. It wasn't long ago that people were beaten and even killed to obtain the sacred power each of you have today, the power to vote. And right now, your vote is more critical than ever. This election is about you and me, your family, and my family, our planet, and our democracy in its entirety. With our votes, we the people can begin to overwhelm the unjust political and economic systems that favor profits over people and elect leaders who will take us forward. Brothers and sisters, go vote. Our lives quite literally depend on it. And we're back. Thank you for staying tuned to the Fired Up Podcast right here on WJMS Media. This is Steve, your host, and we're going to continue our discussion of the political machinery here in the U.S. Specifically, I want to start off this segment of the show. We're going to talk about some numbers. Um, One of the things that we have dealt with on this show uh, several times in the past uh, is the, the number of registered voters uh, who participate in the elections. Uh, I've given you numbers and you can go online and if you search for number of registered uh, voters in the United States, you'll get uh, tables that will show you that essentially uh, when you look at the, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, they are actually fairly evenly matched in terms of the number of overall registered voters in this country uh, that exercise uh, their vote year over year or cycle over cycle. And, you know, each each party has uh, somewhere around between 27 and 30 percent of the overall electorate uh, that are either Democrat or Republican. Now, when you factor in those that are listed as independent, they make up uh, about an additional 35 percent 
of the active uh, voters in the country. So what transpires is that if you put together Democratic voters and, you know, for sake of argument for right now, let's just say independent voters en masse, uh, the Republican electorate is outnumbered uh, roughly two to one. So when you take into account, you know, those numbers and and by the way, uh, realize and, and stipulate that not all independent voters vote with the Democratic side of the ticket. Uh, but even so, uh, the combination of Democrat and independents that lean Democratic uh, outnumbers significantly the number of Republicans. You begin to see the the need and the the want of the Republican Party to limit the number of you know, call them non-Republican voters uh, in each election cycle. This goes to uh, support their actions over the years at gerrymandering districts and implementing you know, voter disenfranchisement tactics and restrictions on you know, various elements of the voting process, including early voting, mail-in voting, drop box locations, etc. cetera. We, we've talked about these things on this show numerous times. Um, but what you end up with is that the the hardcore uh, element of the Republican Party, the so-called MAGA Republicans, actually make up a little bit under a third of Republican voters. So when you when you put those into the numbers, what you end up with is about a uh, five percentage point advantage to the Democrats in the overall electorate. Uh, as compared to Republicans. And when you, you know, do the math on the numbers, the uh, margin of victory that President Biden achieved over uh, former President Trump uh, of about 7 million votes overall uh, roughly ties with that number. Uh, so according to the Census Department, uh, Based on analysis of the turnout for the 2020 election, around 34% of registered voters identified as independents, while 33% identify as Democrats and 29% uh, identified as Republicans. And um, when you look at and take into account the whether independents lean uh, one or one or the other of the two parties, uh, when you take that into account, 49% uh, of all registered voters either identified as Democrats or lean to the Democratic Party, while 44% identify as Republican or lean to the GOP. And further breaking those numbers down a little bit, again, when you look at the, the margin of victory in the popular vote, by uh, President Joe Biden over former President Donald Trump. Uh, and you figure it's about 7 million votes, give or take. Uh, that actually turns out to be uh, about 4.5% of the uh, electorate that voted in 2020. So the numbers line up. So you can see that with, with such a close margin, you know, five points, 
anything that could be done to either increase or decrease uh, the number of voters uh, with a given party uh, actually has a, a very big advantage, which shows the, the driver behind the Republican efforts at you know, disenfranchisement, gerrymandering, and other methods of suppressing the non-Republican vote. So that being said, um, you know, we definitely need to make sure that we get everyone we can out to vote, uh, regardless of party. But, you know, particularly if you're a Democrat, you want to make sure that you get as many people as you can out and that you follow the guidelines. And we've talked about these um, just a crazy amount of times here on this show about making sure that your registration is valid and that you get out and vote and that you actually make sure your vote gets counted, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but those numbers uh, really, really bring it home as to the effect that that can have. Now, when that's at, when we're talking at the national level, um, a couple of shows ago, uh, when we were talking about the Supreme Court, and some of the cases uh, that would be coming forward on the docket in the new session, which just started at the beginning of this month, uh, one of the cases that I cited and said that it was uh, probably one of the top uh, most important cases that the court would hear is based on a case that came out of North Carolina called Moore versus Harper. And you know, this case, uh, in a nutshell and, and in a synopsis, really deals with uh, the legality and logistics of the gerrymandering process uh, in the states. And there's an article that came out of Raw Story uh, that talked about this uh, based on new information that is coming out of the Supreme Court. Uh, this was written by uh, Michelle Griffith. And uh, it came out on the 14th and it uh, says Supreme Court to consider case that could radically reshape the country's elections. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court could soon grant state legislatures unconditional control over federal elections, clearing the way for lawmakers to gerrymander their states with impunity and pass voter restriction measures without interference from the state courts. So step out of the article for a second, just to kind of recap. Right now, if there are questions about the district maps uh, in, in a given state, uh, those challenges will go into the state court system and ultimately uh, land at the state Supreme Court level for decision. And the Supreme Court will either approve or disapprove of the map and if they disapprove, then it will go back to the state legislature to have a new map drawn that follows the guidelines of that state's uh, election process and, you know, considerations for protections, uh, you know, for minorities and, and, and so forth. Um, this, this lawsuit, uh, this, this election case, Moore versus Harper, uh, came about after the Republican-controlled legislature in North Carolina passed in November 2021 a gerrymandered redistricting map 
which gave Republicans a big advantage in U.S. House seats. If the nation's highest court rules in favor of allowing the gerrymandered map, it may do so based on a novel argument, and we talked about this, the so-called independent state legislature theory that would also allow legislatures to enact laws that make it harder to vote in federal elections without having uh, any review available from state courts. Legislatures could shorten the early voting period, restrict mail-in balloting uh, to certain counties, and require voter ID, among other measures. Uh, the, the article talks about the ramifications of this law could be far-reaching. A heavily partisan and already gerrymandered state legislature, as in Wisconsin, for example, could put its thumb on the scale without having to worry about a state court interfering, thus ensuring big victories for their party in, I'm sorry, in congressional elections and locking in Republican rule. You know, according to Suzanne Almeida, uh, Common Cause Director of State Operations, uh, she's quoted as saying, our government will be run by and for the politicians, not the people, close quote. Uh, during a Wednesday conference call with reporters, quote, the danger is not just that partisan political leaders will handpick winners and losers, is that we, the people, will no longer have a fully representative government. So, you know, and this is, again, based on this uh, argument for the independent state legislature theory, which is uh, based on a very controversial interpretation of the United States Constitution. Uh, the argument, which has been widely debunked by constitutional scholars, relies on the notion that state legislatures have exclusive power over federal elections. Its proponents cite the U.S. Constitution's election clause, quote, the time, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof, but the Congress may at any time by law make or alter such regulations. And it seems that the key uh, in that is that um, where it says shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature. That is, the legislature will, will control the how, the when, and the where of uh, elections, uh, federal elections in the state. And that the courts in the states would have no recourse uh, in order to challenge it, it would have to jump directly uh, to the federal legal system, um, you know, and, and therein, you know, obviously lies uh, some concern given the nature of the federal court system. Uh, but as I said, the argument hinges on how the word legislature is interpreted. Uh, the legislature has for a long time been considered uh, to be the state's overall lawmaking process, which includes the state courts. Uh, proponents of the independent state legislature theory say the nation's founders strictly meant that a state legislature shall administer federal elections, not the state courts. 
the executive branch or any other state lawmaking entity. Uh, and, you know, as the voters, we should be very concerned about that, particularly given, you know, the, the state of our legislatures in uh, this country and the fact that uh, gerrymandering the, uh, the districts uh, is sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy in terms of setting the legislature into a single-party rule system that becomes essentially, if this you know independent state legislature clause uh, is upheld, uh, becomes almost unassailable uh, within the states. Uh, so, in a sense, and as I mentioned when we talked about this a couple of episodes ago, uh, it means that you could go out, you can cast your vote, uh, you know, for whichever candidate, whichever party, and the state legislature. The, the House and the Senate in your state uh, can decide to accept or reject the vote of the people and, you know, make their own determination as to who won. Uh, it, essentially, it was the premise behind uh, what was attempted uh, on January 6th uh, by the Republicans uh, in, in the, the certification vote. Uh, that happened and the you know obviously the the reason that was not successful was that the president of the senate uh, then vice president mike pence interpreted the constitutional rules of that certification process uh correctly in in my opinion he followed the the, the letter of the law in the constitution and you know recognized that he did not have any authority to overturn the votes of the people uh, in the way that the Republicans intended. So what this leads to is a situation where uh, perhaps not so much in 2022 as, you know, that is a midterm election and it really is uh, focused on uh, the House and the Senate and the local slates of candidates in each state. Uh, it really looks to when we come back to this point of certification of the electors for president and vice president in 2024. So, you know, one of the things that that is being discussed um, is, you know, voting rights activists are pushing to make the case more well known. And, you know, I fit into that category. I've talked about this now uh, at least four times on my show hoping the public will reject a wholesale takeover of election administration by state legislatures, which are often more concerned with the accumulation of power than free and fair elections. Um, you know, organizations such as Common Cause have members on the ground in North Carolina to inform people about the case and how their vote may be at stake if the U.S. Supreme Court rules in line with the independent state legislature theory. So while the case uh, is scheduled to come before the Supreme Court, uh, a date has not been set for oral arguments, but the court will likely hear arguments in either December or January, and a decision will come sometime early next year. So, you know, again, this is something that, you know, at the state level, uh, we need to make sure we are paying attention to. We need to, uh, you know, 
go online, communicate with your elected officials, find out where they stand on an independent state legislature uh, theory in your state and make your opinion known. Uh, whether you're a Republican or Democrat, uh, if this uh, if this becomes a, a more widespread law of the land, your vote can be taken away. If you are a Republican voter in a Democratic state, your vote can be ignored. If you are a Democratic voter in a Republican state, your vote can be ignored. Either way, this is not uh, what a you know, representative democracy is supposed to be about. So obviously we are going to keep in, in, in touch on this and we are going to let you know uh, what transpires. And lastly, we're going to talk about the uh, senatorial election in Georgia and specifically on the debate that was held uh, last Friday between incumbent Senator uh, Warnock and Republican challenger Herschel Walker. Uh, you didn't really think I was going to let that slip by, did you? So I watched with great interest the debate between Warnock and Walker. Um, and if you remember what I said in the, the second part of my show last week, um, you will recall that I questioned what qualifies uh, Herschel Walker to be a state I'm sorry, a senator uh, in the United States Senate from the state of Georgia. Well, I, I can I can truthfully say I didn't hear anything in that debate to change my opinion. Um, the 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 debate was disjointed, um, and I will say up front that um, Senator Warnock, as well as Herschel Walker both uh, dodged more questions than they answered uh, in this this debate and and by the way this really shouldn't be called a debate and I'll, I'll touch on that at the end but I, I want to stay on track with the discussion of what transpired um, so according to an article in Raw Story and you know in, in infused with my own opinions um, they again the article came out and it talked about uh, how Warnock largely touted bipartisan accomplishments and accused his opponent of speaking falsehoods about his campaign you know he's quoted as saying time and time again tonight we've already seen that my opponent has a problem with the truth Warnock said just because he said something doesn't mean it's true you know and on the other side Walker uh, seemed uh, laser focused on pointing out that Warnock uh, aligned you know, and voted in line with President Biden 96% of the time, which if you're a member of your party and you're voting on legislation proposed by your president, uh, you're pretty much going to vote in line with your president. So, I mean, that's not so much as an indictment as a statement of the kind of truth or fact. Um, the debate, you know, as the article says, comes at a crucial time for both campaigns. Less than 72 hours, and again, this came out late last week, 
uh, less than 72 hours before Georgia's three-week in-person early voting period, which starts today, uh, the date that this, this podcast will drop. Uh, and as the polls show, it's one of the most contested Senate races in the country. Uh, there's a third candidate in the race, in case you didn't know. Uh, is a libertarian named Chase Oliver, uh, who will be on the ballot. Uh, he was not invited to participate in this debate, uh, which was organized by Next Star Media, but he will be on stage with Warnock at an Atlanta Press Club-sponsored debate uh, Sunday uh, with an empty lectern representing uh, Walker uh, if he declines to appear. And again, um, I, I will, will follow up and, and update as to if he did show up, if Walker showed up and the three of them debated uh, we will we will cover that in next week's show. Um, just a just a reminder: if in the vote no one receives more than fifty percent of the vote in November, uh, the race and control of the chamber uh, could be decided in a runoff that would be held on December sixth. So, you know the as I said the the debate um, was largely you know. A, a fairly calm event. Um, there were you know, no uh, verbal fireworks or snappy one-liners. Um, the moderators for the debate uh, exercised some very tight control over the participants and you know as, as exemplified by at one point when talking about support for law enforcement uh, you know, Warnock stated that one thing I have not done is I've never pretended to be a police officer, he said, and I've never threatened a shootout with the police. Uh, Herschel Walker responded, uh, you know, and, and during his response, reached into his jacket pocket and he pulled out a replica uh, police badge or an honorary police badge and flashed it. Now, the moderator immediately stepped in and chastised uh, Mr. Walker for bringing a prop to the debate, which is something that is explicitly forbidden in the rules, which she got Mr. Walker to agree that he understood. Uh, so, you know, even though there was a rule, even though uh, the Republican candidate understood and accepted uh, and agreed to abide by the rules, he ended up not abiding by the rules. It goes back to my prior point on how it seems to be a predilection with Republicans. Um, so, you know, that, that probably was the viral moment of the debate. Uh, obviously, they, they talked about his, um, you know, his being Herschel Walker's uh, issues with his uh, no exception stance on abortion, yet uh, having allegedly paid an ex-girlfriend to have an abortion in 2009 and unsuccessfully trying to have her have a second one, and how he also uh, threatened to kill his ex-wife and son. Um, Walker also you know, backtracked on this support for a total federal ban on abortion with no exceptions for rape, incest, or health of the mother now saying he supports Georgia's law that essentially bans most abortions after six weeks of pregnancy before many 
uh, are even aware that they're pregnant. Um, the, the bulk of the remainder of the debate consisted of some uh, semi-incoherent responses from Herschel Walker and some uh, artfully dodged answers to questions from Senator Warnock uh, that, you know, I believe, you know, really he, he should have made the effort to answer. Um, but that's typical of most debates that occur uh, at, at this point in time. So the, the underlying question and the, the final question that goes to the, um, to the voters is, you know, who are you going to stand behind? Um, you know, it, it, is, it is clear that the Republicans would love to have Herschel Walker uh, be that senator from Georgia uh, as it would assist them in gaining a majority in the Senate, and it would surely give them a very controllable vote uh, in, in the Senate, one that would you know, clearly toe the party line. Uh, Democrats, on the other hand, um, have a, uh, a senator uh, who is the incumbent, who has a track record, uh, who has shown that you know, he has you know, Georgia at heart and, and is uh, a leader, and you know, they, they should go forward and make sure that they are voting uh, to keep him in place. An additional thing to keep in mind for those of you that are Democrats out there is, you know, beyond the the Warnock Walker debate, is uh, Stacey Adams is uh, again seeking to become the country's first black female governor, you know, in a rematch against Brian Kemp, whom she lost to by uh, a couple of tens of thousands of votes. After he, which at the time he was Secretary of State, uh, wiped 300,000 voters uh, off the rolls, primarily in DeKalb County, which is predominantly black, and would have been a logical uh, strong point for Stacey Abrams. So, you know, there's some, there's some blood in the water in Georgia, uh, but it's clear, Georgia voters, you all need to get out and show up and make sure your vote gets counted. Um, the, the last point I want to make as, as we run out of time here in this segment is I said that uh, these really shouldn't be called debates. Uh, a debate is, by definition, uh, where a uh, resolution is given by the debate moderators. For example, uh, resolved, America is a racist country. And then one side is charged with arguing in favor of that. The other side is charged with arguing against it. And their, their arguments are graded by a panel of judges. So that is how a debate, by definition, is supposed to be structured. What we have here is really uh, kind of a question and answer period um, where you know, a, a question is posed and candidate A gets a chance to answer candidate B, gets a chance to, to answer or respond. And the idea being that it, it creates you know, some level of conflict or controversy uh, as you know, partly a show for the voters, but also partly, hopefully, to convey information. 
So in, in my opinion, these should not be called debates. Uh, they should be called anything but a debate. Um, so just wanted to, to bring that little clarification in um, and hopefully and, you know, reminder, particularly if you're in Georgia, but if you are anywhere uh, and your voting period has started, Georgia, yours starts today. Your early voting starts today. Get out there and vote. Um, but make sure that, number one, you check your registration. You make sure that you're registered. You bring all the documentation you need to prove who you are when you go vote. And then finally, go vote. Get out there. Bring your friends. Bring your neighbors. You know, Gather up your circle and go and make sure that your voice is heard and your vote is counted. That's going to wrap up this week's show. As always, please stay safe. Please get out and vote. It is vitally important, as, as I hope this show and, and, and my other shows recently have conveyed. And uh, you know, make sure that your vote gets counted. All right, everyone, please take care. Have a great week, and we will do this all again in seven days.